Well, we're here to remember the Lord Jesus, and Luke 22, we have the account of the, the first Last Supper, as it were, and so it's natural that we might just uh, reflect a little bit on some of the, the words that we've got here about the meaning of what we are now doing. First of all, verse 15, he says, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. This uh, a real emphasis, with desire that I have desired. He really, really wanted to do this. And in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul talks about the breaking of bread, he says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, did the, uh, took, took the bread and wine and shared it. He did the communion service. What's the significance of that little apparently throwaway phrase? The Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, broke bread. Well, I think it, it may be implying that for him that breaking of bread was a great comfort. In the midst of the betrayal that, that he was going through and the hurt and the pain that there was because of that, he so wanted to break bread. With des desire, I desire to do this. Now, that for us, I think, means that he really does want to break bread with us. He wants us to keep this feast. And I think we should remember that because, as the body of Christ is, as I perceive it anyway, at this moment in the 21st century, there are all sorts of ones and twos of believers all over the place. And for whatever reason, people may not have a church or an ecclesia to attend for, for whatever reason. And yet that doesn't mean that they are not part of the body of Christ. And I do urge us all, in those situations, to keep on breaking bread, even on your own. And I've broken bread on my own in all manner of weird situations. And it's a great comfort, and I do urge you to, to do it for the Lord's sake, because with great desire he wanted to do this. And he says in verse 16, I will not any more eat of it until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he uh, says the same in verse 18, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. That's alluding really to how the high priest could not drink wine whilst he was on service, whilst he was doing his work of mediation and, uh, and sacrifice in the Most Holy. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to heaven now, I'm going in to the Most Holy Place for you. And so, all that time, I will not be drinking wine, but the implication is, I will drink it again with you, when I come back. So then, Jesus is not passive in heaven. He's doing what the high priest did when he went into the holiest place. And what did he do? He made atonement for the sins of the people. Well, Jesus did that on the cross, and yet, in another sense, it is ongoing. My simple point is that we who at times feel neglected, feel a silence from God, should realize that actually the Lord Jesus is extremely active for us in heaven. Now, this Passover feast would be fulfilled in, or you could say fulfilled by, the kingdom of God. So then, what we are doing now as we sit here and as we, we partake in this feast... This is a foretaste of the, the Messianic banquet, which Isaiah talks about and which is hinted at throughout the New Testament, that when Jesus comes again, there will be this great supper, this celebration supper, where he himself, Luke 12:37, will come forth and serve us. 
Now, I understand that what we shall hereafter be is hid from mortal eyes, and yet I do wonder if we will be more, shall I say, human than we might imagine, because he talks about not eating and drinking literal bread and literal wine until the kingdom of God shall come. And the logic of how he's speaking there would surely imply that there is something literal, there is a literal element to what he's saying. Not, of course, that we shall need to eat or drink, but in some sense there will be this celebration. The parable of Luke 14 speaks of a great supper to which people are being invited, people don't want to come, but finally it will happen. And so our attitude, particularly, I think, at the Lord's table now, is a foretaste of what shall be in God's kingdom. We are called to, as it were, be God's kingdom now, to be a microcosm of that kingdom which is to come right now. And the implication is, I think, we particularly show that celebration at the breaking of bread. And I, I have to, as always, sound a sober warning that the attitude that I will only break bread with those who I think are good enough, and if he's here or she's there, I'm walking out of here. This is very, very dangerous. It's very much the spirit of the older brother. The whole point of the prodigal son parable is, of course, not the prodigal son, but the older son. And the tragedy is that at the end of the story, he is left outside. And that was the sting and the end of that parable, as there's always a, an end stress in uh, many of the parables. The point is that he ended up outside fellowship with God and outside the banquet of celebration because he didn't want to be there, because he didn't want to be with his brother. So our attitude at the breaking of bread is very seriously looked at. And we might typically say, most members of the body of Christ, I suppose, would say, well, I don't make the decision, somebody else does. But people only make those decisions because they are given power by people like you and me. And this is something that we have to take very seriously, that no matter what it costs you, and believe me, it costs me an awful lot to be able to say to you with integrity, do as I have done, um, insist that, no, we will break bread, I will break bread, with all those that I look forward to being in the kingdom with. And there is no... There is no argument against that. The argument is only for that. Now, when he says there in verse, verse 16, <clears throat> uh, he, he talks here, uh, sorry, not 16, um, he talks about the, uh, the cup, and uh, he talks about it as the the cup of the uh, of the covenant and the the blood of the covenant verse 20 sorry this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you now let's think a little bit about what that implies this is the New Testament in my blood. This cup is the new covenant. It's actually quoting from the Septuagint of Exodus 24, verse 7, which says, This is the blood of the covenant. And that blood was sprinkled on the people. 
And they, in response to that, vowed obedience to God's law. And so we can't, in one sense, be in covenant relationship with God, and it's all just one way. It's what God does for us. Covenant implies that we also have responsibilities to him. And taking that cup of the covenant is a two-way thing. It reminds us of the amazing grace whereby we are certainly saved. And yet also, it is the challenge that I am in covenant. I am not just a free agent in this world. I am in covenant with God Almighty. And this cup is, he says, the cup of the, the covenant, the, the blood of the covenant. Now, the new covenant, as Paul explains a couple of times, was actually in the promises to Abraham. And it was confirmed, he says in Romans 15, by the blood of Christ. Now, the confirmation was not in that sense necessary. Because we who believe God and believe God's word, if God said right back in Genesis, I will give you, and to Abraham, I will give you and your seed eternal inheritance of the earth uh, and blessing, and of course Acts 3, 25, 26 interprets that blessing as the blessing of forgiveness of sin, well if that's what God's offering, that's it. That's the good news of the kingdom. Right back there in Genesis, and God could have left it at that. You identify yourself with the seed of Abraham by Galatians 3, baptism into him. All that is true of him becomes true of us. We also, therefore, will live forever and have the blessing of forgiveness of sin because the thoughtful Israelite would have thought about those promises about eternal inheritance and thought, well, how can I get eternal life when I'm a sinner and sin brings death? I need the blessing of forgiveness. Oh, that's exactly what the promises to Abraham offer. Not just eternal life in the land, eternal inheritance, but blessing. The blessing of forgiveness, which of course is required if we are to have eternal life. That promise was made. Simple as that. And could have been just left like that. But God wants to persuade us. And so Hebrews makes the point that, okay, there was the promise, and then there was the oath which confirmed the promise, so that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. So it's as if God is trying to persuade us to believe this simple, the, simpl the absolutely simplest truth of the gospel. If you believe, you will live forever. But he confirms it by an oath. And that confirmation of the new covenant, of the promises that were made to Abraham, was, Paul says, through the blood of Christ. And in that sense, the, the cup which we drink, the cup of the new covenant, is the, the blood which confirmed it as real. Hebrews 7 uses the same idea when he talks about priesthood. And he makes the point that the Jewish priests were not confirmed by an oath, but that the priesthood of Jesus has been confirmed by an oath. As if, well, you can just believe that Jesus is your mediator, but there is a confirmation. And an oath to men, even, the writer says, is an end of all strife, an end of all debate and worry and etc. So then, <clears throat> Paul puts it another way in Romans when he says that God has commended his love to us. 
and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As if God's love needs any commendation. And yet this is, I think, the urgency and almost the desperation of God to persuade us that really, this is real. Yes, yes, yes. It's all as good as it sounds. There's no catch. Okay, you doubt it. I will give the blood of my Son to confirm this covenant. Not that it was not true before that, but to, as it were, persuade us to just put the stamp on it, a double stamp, that this is true. So that, as Hebrews says, we might have strong consolation, so that we might never again have any realistic doubt that really I will live forever in God's kingdom on earth, that I will receive the blessing and the inheritance. And that is, I think, a window into this difficult question which I guess we regularly have as we think about the death of the Lord. Why? Why was it necessary? And why was it necessary in the way that it was? Crucifixion was so public. I mean, Jesus did not drink poison quietly or just quietly slit his throat and die. It was a very public, open death. And I think it was so public because God wanted to persuade us of the certainty of our salvation. Now, by saying or by implying, as I am, that our salvation would have been possible without the death of Christ, I'm not in any sense uh, diminishing the eternal significance of what he did. But God did not require blood as in the red liquid of a human being in order to operate, in order to save, in order to carry out his purpose. He's not that primitive. He's not like that. But what God wanted to do was to persuade people like you and I that this is true. That really, that basic simple promise of eternity and salvation was for real. And he could, uh, again, as Hebrews says, he could swear by no greater, so he swore by himself. And he gave the ultimate, which was the blood of his own son. And so then this cup of the covenant which we are taking, this is a celebration of the confirmation of that new covenant, that new testament, which was in fact in the promises to Abraham. And we therefore should leave this place as we reflect upon him there, not in that sense of forgiven people, because we are already forgiven and there is nothing metaphysical that goes on in, in, the, uh, in the wine or through the bread that somehow metaphysically mediates forgiveness to us. But we leave this place having seen again the confirmation of the very, very simple truth that really we will be saved that our sin is no longer a barrier to God's final salvation of us. It's moving on a little further now to verse 19. He says, Do this in remembrance of me. And the point has been made by quite a few people that this is a totally inadequate translation of the Greek. The words don't indicate uh, simply a memorial meal in memory of a man now dead. But the idea really is, this idea of uh, 
in remembrance of me, the, the idea is making a present reality of, of Christ's death. That somehow the bread and wine <clears throat> make it all come real to us. That is, of course, that if you are focused upon the ultimate meaning and purpose of what we are doing here, if no other things are, are coming in to distract your attention, like who else is breaking bread, um, whatever the uh, colour of the chairs or problems in your life that, that are wandering around on your mind, etc. If we are focused, really, <clears throat> upon him, this whole memorial meal is designed by God to make somehow his memory, his remembrance, come real. That, that is definitely the idea of, of those Greek words. And so, <clears throat> all through the rest of the, the record here, you see his presence and his, his grace. Now, he talks about how this is um, this uh, meal that we're doing now is to be repeated in verse 30. He says, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. The implication again, as I said earlier, is that what we are doing now is a foretaste of that which is to happen at the Lord's return. And he talks about my table, implying that when you break bread in memory of me, you are also sitting at my table. And it's called, elsewhere, the table of the Lord. Now, in all meetings uh, and meals, etc., of this nature in first century uh, Palestinian society, there had to be a host, and the host was a vital figure. And yet, here we're told, this is my table. And this would explain how very poor believers could meet together in the home of maybe a rich believer and keep this meal, keep this feast. And yet, that rich owner of the house was not actually the host. He might have visibly, humanly appeared that. But it was the Lord's table. Let's also remember how they would have understood that. The host was the one who was running the meeting. It was absolutely unheard of for any other guest to ever tell someone else who had been invited, get out of here, or hey you, you're not allowed in here. It's absolutely wrong, because it is the Lord's table. He is the invisible host. And that's what we have to feel somehow, even if you're breaking bread on your own, let alone if there's two or three of you, or let alone a larger group, that we are guests. This is the Lord's table. He is the heavenly host. There is, I believe, a, in that sense, a, a special presence of the Lord at the breaking of bread. At least that is his intention. And it is a vehicle, that's all it is. It's a vehicle towards our remembrance of him and the closeness of walk which, which we should have with him. So then we, we go on here in, uh, in Luke 22 and we see uh, Peter's tragic uh, denials. But I think the, the lead up to that is there in the garden 
where the uh, the people come to arrest Jesus, and Peter objects with that to that verse uh, 49. They said unto him, uh, and the other record says, Peter, particularly, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them, Peter, verse 50, smote the servant of the high priest, cut off his right ear. Why did they want to start this fight when they knew they were going to be overpowered and, and killed? Why do they want to do that when in other ways they were not very brave at all? Well, I think it fits in with uh, a theme, which there is, of Peter and all of them, but Peter particularly, just not liking the idea of Jesus dying on the cross. He would have far rather died himself in a, in a good old sword fight than see Jesus arrested and go to the cross. And why is that? I think it's because... Well, it's the same reason why whenever Jesus raises the issue of his upcoming crucifixion, the disciples change the subject. It always happens in all the incidents in the Gospels. Why this difficulty with the idea that Jesus must die on the cross? Why is there this difficulty in all of us in keeping our minds focused upon him there? What exactly, psychologically, is the reason why? we tend to skim-read the accounts of the crucifixion. Why is it that we have a problem in focusing upon him there? And I think the answer is because we realize that all that is true of him must be true of us if we are truly his followers. If we're following him to the end, then his death is to become ours. And we would rather get out of it quick like Peter did, like, let's have a sword fight and let's fight to the end. Sure, we're going to have to fight to the death, but sure, come on guys, let's do it. He preferred that, rather than realizing that we must follow him. With all that that implies, in terms of picking up a cross daily. When we go through now the record of the uh, denials of Jesus, uh, of Peter... I want to just focus on, on one little thing there, because time, uh, time is shut. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. The same word translated uh, looked comes up in, uh, in a slightly different form when Peter says, First of Peter 2 verse 12, the day of visitation is coming for us all, the day of looking. All the way through Peter's speeches and acts and in his letters, he's all the time alluding to his own failures, particularly this incident of his denials of the Lord. And on that basis, he is appealing to us. He, the one who denied the Lord, you know, he says, uh, 2 Peter 2 verse 1, that these terrible false teachers, they even deny the Lord that bought them. Like, that's how far they go. They do the, the worst. They even deny him. Like, Peter, you're the one who denied Jesus, right? But he can say that quite confidently, making that allusion all the way through to his own failure, because that was the very basis upon which he appealed to people. So the day of visitation is coming for us all. The day of being looked at by Jesus at the day of judgment. And yet we're invited, I think, really, by the style of the narrative of the denials of Jesus to 
play what Harry Whitaker used to call Bible television, to imagine how it all worked out, and to imagine the look that was in the eyes of Jesus as he looked upon Peter. And that day of looking, that day of visitation, those same lovely and loving and saving and concerned and wishing to save eyes are going to look very soon at you and me.